This is TechSnap, episode 383. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was recorded on Thursday, September 13th, 2018. My name is Wes, and joining me, well, it's the patriarch of this here show, the bastion of BSD, and the ZFS, oh, excuse me, ZFS, Zealot, the one, the only, Alan Jude. Welcome to the show, Alan. Hey, everybody. It's nice to be back for a day. (laughs) It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for stepping up and, and volunteering to your time and your expertise to fill in while Chris is healing up. It's very much appreciated. How are you? I'm good. Glad to be back. Excellent. Well, we've got an awesome show coming up here, so I guess we might as well just keep on rolling. Now, I bet you heard a little bit, Alan. Back in June, Gentoo had a bit of a security incident involving their GitHub repository. Yeah, uh, the whole repository taken over such that they didn't have access to it anymore, which is even worse than somebody slipping something in there because there's nothing they couldn't undo it as quickly. Uh, they're like, how do we recover the account? And GitHub's like, well, this doesn't happen very often. We're not sure. And uh, you kind of get the feeling the only reason they managed to get things back was manual intervention by the GitHub people because, you know, somebody at Gentoo knew somebody at GitHub kind of thing. Right. The right backdoor conversations happened. They got control back. But that's that's not always so easy. You also have to worry about the opposite case where someone claims to be Gen 2 and convinces somebody at GitHub to give them control of the account back. Yeah, exactly. Right, And so you can actually be in a worse case when, let's say, GitHub doesn't have a, a policy and a procedure for recovering an account uh, because when they just have someone step in and do it, uh, that person could be socially engineered or could be a malactor. Uh, and so while it's great that Gen 2 got their account back until there's actual procedures for how this happens, it gets worrying that GitHub just steps in and and gives the account back to somebody at the same time. Yeah, manual interventions without a playbook or standards or, you know, even just a good checklist of things to check to make sure you're giving it to the real person who should have access. Yeah, it's... uh, Thinking back, there was a Tech Step episode and I was like, oh, like seven years ago, (laughs) um, (laughs) where uh, somebody had their iCloud account seized in Sys. Basically, uh, somebody got enough information about the person to answer enough of the questions on an Apple support call to seize control of their uh, iCloud account. Uh, I think in in the end, the whole thing was about stealing like a two letter uh, Twitter handle or three. I think it was MAT on Twitter. Yeah, right. Those are always high value. Yeah, but like they they. Uh, remotely, they used like find my iPhone to remotely erase the guy's iPhone and iPad and everything. Uh, wow. So on top of seizing his account, they remotely erased his devices with the find my iPhone feature and so on. Uh, all because, well, the guy had uh, what passed for two-factor authentication back in the day. The support people were able to override that. Uh, but, you know, at, at some point, there needs to be a way to, well, sometimes you do lose your second factor token or whatever. And how do you get back into it? It's like, it gets all kinds of crazy. Like I, I, uh, I know for the two factor uh, authentication tokens for games, it's often the fact that, well, I got a new phone and you know, I traded in the old phone, so I don't have it anymore. And how do I recover two factor authentication? Because normally that requires you log in, which requires the two factor authentication, but <laughs> it, the apps tied to my other phone, which is not, 
alive anymore. Yeah, right. You get into some awkward circumstances, and it feels like those aren't always thought about fully by the providers. You know, there's not always a little run book of like, here's some corner cases that you might hit, and here's what you should do. A lot of times you're just left hoping you have a device somewhere that still has access, or you go through support. Yeah, and you know, support has to make it hard enough that it's not easy for someone to bluff their way through. But at the same time, the whole point of support is that they're supposed to provide, you know, do what the customer right. wants and get things working again. Yeah, here you are in, a, in an emergency. You really need access to your account. You just got a new machine because your old one got, you know, got ruined somehow. And you have a thing you got to deliver for your client by this time and you just can't get access. Yes, or even, you know, uh, find my iPhone or the, the similar thing they have for the Mac. It's like, well, my laptop, my, my bag was stolen. So there's my laptop and my phone. How do I log into iCloud to activate find my <laughs> iPhone? Because I need my phone to do two-factor authentication. Ouch. Well, that's rough. Uh, or it's like, and oh, I well, you could use your email, except for that's too fact. And it's like, how do we avoid having a deadlock here? Uh, and, you know, we actually have another story about that later in the show. Yeah, we absolutely do. If you want to know more about, well, what Alan was just referencing, that's TechSnap 70. Go check that out in the archives wow. over at <laughs> jupiterbroadcasting.com. That was only 300 and some odd weeks ago. You, sir are a trooper. And, I mean, you've done a great job here laying out some of the concerns that people have, why it can be really hard to handle access to your account. Well, turns out Mozilla, they're concerned too, especially after that Gen 2 incident. They have some GitHub accounts, and now originally it was kind of just like how Gen 2 was doing it. You know, they had their own repositories on their own infrastructure that was actually the source of truth, and GitHub was just a convenient way for the public to get mirrors of them, see updates, use the nice GitHub Interface. Yeah, FreeBSD does the same thing. Our GitHub is just a read-only mirror of our real uh, source of truth repository. Although, uh, just like uh, in uh, Mozilla's case, we've started to have uh, sub-projects that live only on GitHub, like uh, the the package tool, our, our binary package manager. Oh, um, yeah. The, the tool for building packages. Uh, I've created repos for things as simple as the website where we post the slides from all the talks we give at all the conferences. Uh, and all of these exist only on GitHub now. Uh, and so, you know, if someone were to get right access to that, they could, you know, insert malicious JavaScript or something into a website that people go to. And that would be bad for the project. And worse, in, you know, in the case of Mozilla, they could have state-level actors who are trying to get uh, malware into bits of Mozilla software that might be consumed by other software. Uh, you know, the dependency chain, the number of different applications and use cases that depend on something from Mozilla that would come from that GitHub repo could be, you know, into all kinds of things you wouldn't even expect. Yeah, right. They have a very broad reach and use. And so, yeah, little tiny changes can sneak their way all through the supply chain. And, you know, Mozilla, they're in a big place in the world. They do a lot of great stuff, and that just makes them an even bigger target. Yeah. So uh, what they have here is a blog post from their security team where they've uh, walked through some of the procedures they're putting in place uh, to prevent this kind of thing from getting, uh, you know, so that they can have some control over what happens here. And so in general, their guidelines are that all members of the organization uh, on GitHub must have two-factor authentication. Uh, and all users who have any level of elevated privileges need to have uh, out-of-band contact methods, whether that's email or IM or Sly or whatever, um, so that the org owners and repo people can get in touch with them if there's a problem. You know, by default, GitHub allows users to hide their contact info for privacy, but they need to make sure that the 
administrators of the repo have a way to reach you in case there's uh, a question whether, you know, if this was a legitimate commit, but also that it's the responsibility of those individual uh, developers to make sure they notify the organization admins and the repo admins if uh, their account might be compromised by a stolen laptop or, or something like that. That's an important point right there. Yeah, if you even suspect that sort of thing, best to take precautions. You know, it, one of those things where they, they might have a social stigma, but it's better to be safer than sure. Get practice rotating keys, locking out accounts, that sort of thing. And, you know, if you're wrong, good. You've got a new password. Off you go. Because uh, the other one uh, I saw on Twitter recently was a developer installed a Python module that turned out to be malicious and didn't realize that it had replaced the ls command on their system with one that used curl to post a tarball of their whole home directory to a website if when they ran ls. Oh no, that's frightening. Yeah, because, you know, that happens to have SSH keys and maybe Amazon keys and, and in this case, the GPG key maybe that you use to sign uh, commits to your Git repo. And that would then allow someone to uh, post a commit to the Mozilla repo saying, yeah, I'm that guy. Uh, as part of these changes, Mozilla is recommending that uh, completely disable force pushes so somebody can't uh, diverge to the tree and cause all kinds of those problems, but also... Uh, only give commit privileges to a small set of users. Try not to give everybody access. You know, people create pull requests and we can have them approved by a smaller set of people. Right. It's only a small cost and velocity, but it ensures that we don't have, you know, too many people uh, that where any one of them might have the ability to cause a problem. Right. You might want code review or other tests or other things baked in there anyway. So it's, yeah. it's just nice to have a little, a little more careful watchdogs there. Yep. Uh, and then finally, requiring all commits have the GBG sign uh, option and get. I like it. I mean, these these seem pretty pretty reasonable. They and just having that extra GPG key, right? They've got some stuff here about their workflow recommendations, so that deployments, releases, and any other, as they say, audit worthy events should all be marked with a signed tag from a GPG key known in advance. Now, Alan, one thing longtime TechSnap listeners are sure to know about you is well. You're always traveling. In fact, didn't you just get back from some travel this week? Uh, yesterday morning. <laughs> ah, okay, yes, yeah, so that's right right on time. Yeah, I was uh, down in San Francisco for the Open ZFS Developer Summit. Oh, you know, I'm sure that was a fantastic time. Yes, uh, tune in to next week's BSD Now, and I'll have a recap of uh, all of the goings-on that were there. Uh, and uh, showing off my new uh, Super Nintendo Classic or whatever that I won at the hackathon. That's fantastic. I will definitely be keeping my eyes out for that. Now, for this time, it doesn't seem likely that you would have flown on British Airways, but if any of our listeners have, watch out. A cybersecurity firm, RiskIQ, has found some malicious code injected into their website, probably the cause of a recent data breach that affected almost 400,000 transactions. Yeah, a uh, friend of mine just bought his tickets to come to uh, MeetBSD in California from British Airways. Uh, I think because he did it this week, he might have just missed having his card stolen. Hopefully he's safe, fingers crossed, over here. Yeah, so uh, RiskIQ basically found that a common JavaScript library called Modernizer, uh, which I think the original goal of that was actually making your website work properly in older versions of Internet Exploder. <laughs> yes, exactly. Respond to your user's browser features is their tagline. Yeah. Um and basically kind of provide better forward compatibility. So an older browser will handle newer uh, types of CSS and, and JavaScript to, to work. Anyway, um, 
the bad guys added sometimes as little as five or so lines, but it, I think it was 22 lines in total of code into that file. Uh, somehow they were able to write it into the, the British Airways website. And so during checkout, when you're buying a flight or whatever, and you type in your credit card number, and when you hit the submit button, it triggered some JavaScript uh, where it would literally use jQuery and, and grab the element with the ID payment form, serialize all of the fields into it, uh, map that, and post it uh, as an Ajax request to a completely different URL that they came up with here. Uh, so they actually registered a domain that looked like it would belong to British Airways, but actually didn't. It was like baways.com. Oh, that is so close. Dang. Slash gateway, slash app, slash data processing, slash API. It's like literally just buzzword soup, right? Yeah, I'll post my data there. No problem, Alan. Well, you, you don't, unless you have like the uh, the developer console open in your browser when you're paying for your flight, you're not going to have seen this one post go off to a different URL anyway. All right. Yeah, you'll have no idea. Yeah. Uh, so it's a clean version of the version of Modernizer they were using should have had a timestamp from December 2012. But when you requested the, the modified version, you saw a timestamp of last modified August 21st. Oh, suspicious. Yeah, these 22 lines of JavaScript would basically post uh, everything you've put in the payment form to this other website where they would then steal it. And uh, apparently this victimized about 380,000 people. Yeah, right. Things like uh, names, email addresses, credit card details, including the whole number, the expiration date, and of course, that security code. Yes, the CVV, which is a big thing, because if they had hacked the BA website and managed to get their database of orders or whatever, that has credit card and expiration date and so on. But you're not supposed to store that CVV. Uh, this is the whole point of, of that rule is so that hacked databases don't expose that bit of information. And if everybody asks for that, then the attacker is stuck. They don't have a way to use the stolen credit card. But when they manage to intercept things, it doesn't work. You know, It kind of makes you realize that HTTPS isn't the be-all end-all of security. Right? The site was using HTTPS. Everything you sent to BA was encrypted. But uh, the bad JavaScript meant you also posted to baways.com. Even over HTTPS, so it was secure, right? <laughs> yeah. You just securely and encrypted, sent your credit card details directly to the bad guys. I really, I mean, it really seems like a story of you really do have to understand the whole, all the things that go into making your site and have an understanding of how how secure they are. Are you monitoring monitoring them for updates? Do you have ways to check, you know, validity and check that nothing's been modified on your backend systems that are shipping to the website. And of course, this is you know largely separate, hopefully, se separate system from a lot of their actual day-to-day -day plane airport operations. Yes. But they still, you know, there's a lot of money spent here and a lot of people use their services. Uh, other interesting thing that RiskIQ noted is the bad guys uh, apparently decided to go with a paid SSL certificate. So they paid uh, like probably 10 or $20 for a regular SSL certificate uh, instead of using Let's Encrypt, possibly to try to make it look more legitimate. But most people aren't, you know, inspecting the certificates of every website that uh, a particular web page is pulling and pushing data from. Who's got time for that? If you've ever opened the developer console on a big website and see that you're actually connecting to 12 different websites to load this page, you'd be like, well, yeah. 
Ouch. Well, yeah, it's really just a good case of, of watch what's happening in your code base, know how that all happens, and ideally make it hard for those sorts of changes. I don't know if this changed you know, in their, in their source control repository or there was just a change made to production servers, what the link right. is there on their backend. There's lots of things here, but if you're building systems that especially that handle tran- monetary transactions, you got to take this stuff seriously. Now, a big story that happened while you've been away from the show, well, that was... Equifax and their giant data breach. It's been some time now. A lot has happened in really the rest of the world, certainly in my life, I'm sure in yours, Alan. Unfortunately, not much has changed for Equifax. Yeah. Uh, as we've seen how many times something, some big breach like this happens, and there's kerfuffle about it for a couple of days, and you know, Equifax's stock went down a little bit, and then nothing happened. Uh, as the, the headline in the article says, Equifax is financially stable and legally in the clear. Right. I mean, and this was troublesome for so many reasons. Not only did they try to blame open source technologies, not only did they lose data on 147 million consumers, and of course, this is data that you didn't ask them to collect about you or even give them permission to. They just... They just have, but that we now are in a world where, yeah, sure, they might have had some short-term consequences. There was certainly a lot of press and hubbub, but has their business practice changed really at all? No. Yeah, because uh, there are some other specific questions that maybe, you know, uh, as uh, one of the American lawmakers says here, there was a failure of the company, but also of the laws and the lawmakers. Uh, in particular, the question of, with Equifax, they knew for months that the data had been breached before they reported it. And at that point, you're violating securities laws because you know it, it's going to affect the stock price and you know it's going to affect the stock price so you can't just keep it a secret or, for example, sell some of your stock while it's still before the price has gone down because you know the bad news is coming. But also, you know, uh, I think even Sony originally, if you go back to like TechSnap episode 10 or something <laughs> with the Sony PlayStation breach, they got in trouble legally in Canada because they didn't disclose that Canadians were affected by the breach uh, quickly enough. Like they knew for long enough and they, they didn't uh, tell people that, hey, your data has been stolen. That's just as a quick correction here. That's TechSnap episode three. Oh, jeez. Yeah. You know, back then we weren't sure what TechSnap was going to be about. Uh, I think in, in Chris's mind originally it was going to be a little more unfiltery. Uh, and in my mind, it was going to be something a little different. And then we were kind of shaped by the first like five major stories, which were like the Dropbox and the Sony PlayStation Network uh, compromises. And then suddenly TechSnap had its its groove. And the rest is history. Like literally history. <laughs> literally history. Now, now, one thing that's sort of interesting about this story well, we're going to tie into it more later on in the show today, but mm-hmm. it's just a complicated world. I think that's where the lawmaking failure comes into it because, of course, a business is going to do whatever they need to to be profitable, to sustain themselves, and to grow, and we sort of expect that. And so there are certainly, you know, you have to make considerations. If you can be totally secure, but your customers, you know, you can't get your product launched, well, that's not going to work for your business. But on the same hand, we would hope that security is going to be an important consideration, especially for the long-term health of the business. That's where it goes into we need a society that's set up both in terms of culture and norms and expectations and in actual laws and the enforcements of those laws so that businesses operate in an environment where security is something that is considered and actually has to be done. Yeah, and uh, really part of the problem comes later in the article. It's like 
Originally, there was a, an investigation launched by the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but they left and a new director came in who declined to pursue Equifax with the investigation. Uh, and then the Federal Trade Commission is investigating uh, for the second time this decade. But as uh, Elizabeth Warren says here, people deserve an update on these investigations. And it says, uh, companies like Equifax do not ask American people before they collect their most sensitive information. This information can determine the ability to access credit, obtain a job, secure a home loan, uh, purchase a car, you know, even sometimes to rent an apartment. Um, and people have no recourse here. Uh, you know, they don't even know their information is being taken or that Equifax isn't taking the protection of that information seriously. Right. This is not just some third-party business or, or, you know, out there that is just a some player on their own entirely private part. I mean, yes, it is, but credit agencies, credit scores, all of this personal information and the services they provide are an integral part of everyone's personal and business lives. And you just can't, you know, it really is a function that we need filled in society. And that means there should probably be some more, you know, a few more strictures and regulations or at least guidelines around that. Yeah, so far the only action taken against Equifax was the Securities and Exchange Commission brought charges against Equifax, but not for the breach itself, but just against three former staffers who sold their stock in the time between when they knew the breach had happened and before that information was public. The fact that that time was so big is another problem that really should have resulted in more heads rolling. Uh, but so far, the SEC has just gone after the three people who profited off the situation unfairly. I think that maybe shows just a little bit about where our priorities are. We'll follow up on this. It'll be something we keep covering on the TechSnap program. These sorts of problems aren't going away. And just stay tuned here today because we'll have more discussion about why it's important that we take actions even beyond government regulation. But of course, before we get there, well, we've got a little feedback into the show. Thought it'd be fun. Uh, haven't done TechSnap feedback for a while, Alan. So let me let me read you Stephen's question. Sure. Hey guys, thank you for keeping up the awesome work with TechSnap. I've written him before. Actually, he wrote in, he was feedback on Dan's last episode. So go go find that in the show notes. I've been reliably using auto SSH running on a Raspberry Pi to connect to a DigitalOcean droplet. Then I can use applications like X2Go or SSH or a couple Android applications I like to connect back to my LAN. Well, I've been rebuilding this. At one point, I kind of messed up some of the setup, so I thought best case would be just to, you know, build it up from scratch again. Ideally, also, hopefully, he's doing some documentation here. Unfortunately, I was running into some issues that I'm sure I solved before. Basically, I could not connect to my jump box on port 9000, which I expected to be forwarded from my LAN. After, after doing some Googling, I found the issue, and I believe it has to do with the gateway port's SSH option being commented out. Now, it has a default of no, and, and it looks like I need to set it to yes. Are there any security impl implications to having the gateway port set to yes? Are there any other security implications I should be worried about here? The BIO only allows key authentication, and auto SSH is running as a user that was created with a no-login shell. What should I be worried about? Thank you. Yeah, uh, so uh, what he's talking about is he's creating a port forward, uh, or uh, an SSH tunnel, so that once he connects with SSH, it will open up a port, and when you connect to that port, SSH will then tunnel it off to inside of his LAN. So you, there are security implications there. The reason why the default is no, and when, the, when it is set to no, what it means is that when you ask SSH to port, uh, forward port 9000 to inside your LAN, 
uh, it binds to localhost port 9000, assuming that you're, you know, you're doing this from your local machine. And that's so that you're not exposing that to the internet. The, the re reason for that is the implication is if you have this turned on and you're listening on uh, the internet on port 9000, while you're using an SSH tunnel, you have to remember that everything else is not secure, right? Uh, the connection you make to port 9000, everything you're sending across it is in the open. Now, if what you're sending across it is a VPN connection, then maybe that is encrypted itself. But uh, it's also that SSH is not going to limit who can connect to port 9000. So if you expose port 9000 to the internet uh, with this forwarding, anybody that can connect to that Raspberry Pi or whatever on port 9000, or the I think it's a DigitalOcean droplet in this case, on port 9000 will then get reverse tunneled into your Raspberry Pi. And maybe that's not what you want, but maybe it is. Uh, so rather than setting that setting to yes, which will force every port forward you create to be accessible to every IP address on the machine, there's a third option where you can say client specified. Uh, so if you set the gateway ports to client specified in your SSHD config, then it uh, determines what addresses to listen on from the SSH command you write. So when you set up the port forward, you say the IP address I want to listen on colon 9000, and I want you to forward to this IP address in this port. And if you want it to be every IP, you just leave it blank. So colon 9000 colon IP colon port, uh, and it will accept uh, incoming connection on any IP on port 9000 and forward it to that destination and port. But that's a lot better than setting it to yes, which you might you know, specifically want it to do localhost one time and then ends up not. Right. Usually, usually the, you know, localhost is the, is a good default because normally that's probably what you want. That's usually what I end up wanting. And so if you have the option, you can make it more specific for the one or two services that you actually intend to forward to the internet. Yeah. So don't set it to yes, set it to client specified. That way it's, uh, it allows you as the authenticated SSH user to say that I want this one open to everybody, but it doesn't open everyone you try to do to everyone. Uh, and just make sure that whatever you're forwarding port 9000 to uh, from your DigitalOcean droplet is you're comfortable with that being accessible from anybody on the internet. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Make sure it's running in a sandbox or as a you know untrusted user. All the normal security things you would do for something open to the whole internet. And especially be aware that, you know, is it in a position where if they compromise that application, they're already on your land. So be extra cautious there. I would also add that just, you know, the SSH stuff, regardless, that can just be considered transport here. You should still, it's probably still a good idea to have a good firewall set up, especially one that's denied by default where you actually have to explicitly list what ports can have incoming traffic from the internet so you know, yes, okay, I'm okay with 9000, but make sure that nothing else can be listening. Yeah, your other option there is maybe a two-step process. Instead of uh, having the DigitalOcean droplet listen on its IP on port 9000 on the internet and forward it to your Raspberry Pi, when you're on your laptop on the road at a conference or something, you SSH to the DigitalOcean droplet with a port forward of localhost 9000 on your laptop being forwarded to localhost 9000 on DigitalOcean droplet while it does this uh, the existing one you have where 9000 on the droplet goes to the Raspberry Pi. And that way, only your laptop can connect into your LAN that way. Uh, and you can, uh, we have a tutorial on the BSD Now website on how to set up these, uh, like a jump host with a chain, so that you can actually say, you can have an alias in your SSH config on your laptop that says, you know, SSH to 
my home NAS, and it'll actually SSH from over the internet to your DigitalOcean droplet, which will SSH or use your reverse SSH tunnel that you already established to get to your Raspberry Pi, and then have your Raspberry Pi SSH to your NAS. But you just typed the one box you wanted to go through, and it did the, the jumping for you so that you can get to your NAS that you definitely don't want on the internet. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't, you know, if you are in a position where you have clients that you can customize a little bit or install software or do things like that, then yeah, something something more configured SSH or a VPN, those will be a lot better options. Yeah, uh, because this one is a client configuration thing, so you can have it in your home directory. You don't have to modify the the SSH config in etc. You can just do the one in your home directory and everything. Uh, and it's a, a nice way to to deal with jump hosts. You can even do it where. You can write a command such that you do SSH to system 1%, system 2%, system 3, and it knows that it's going to jump through each of those for you. Oh, that's just so slick. There's so many neat options there. So thank you for that information, Alan. And thank you to Stephen for writing in. That was a great question. Please keep them coming. We love questions, war stories, or just anything you're interested in. Send it to us. You can find that information. Ways to get in touch. TechSnap.Systems slash contact. As we were discussing before, security, it's a constant consideration. It's a constant iterative process. You're never really done. It's something you need to keep thinking about. And it's becoming more and more important for businesses of all sizes. But unfortunately, it's not always a business priority. And the people on the board or top executives might not come from a background that understands why security is so important and why it's so difficult. One tactic people sometimes use in these cases is public shaming. There's a lot of controversy here. There's opinions on both sides. Alan, I know you've got some thoughts. And this week, well, so does Mr. Troy Hunt. The, the whole dogpiling on people and the tone that we generally have on social media is often not very helpful. Uh, but at the same time, to date with TechSnap, um, the most effective way to get a company to improve its security is by making them look bad. Because uh, then they suddenly take it seriously and try to, to clean it up. Uh, and so over on his blog, Tony has uh, some uh, a selection of interesting tweets about this and uh, just why he thinks shaming is the right thing to do. In particular, he says, some people don't like the idea of publicly shaming a company for bad security posture, but time and time again, it's the only way that gets results. I don't buy the excuse that somehow it's unfair to an organization or their social media team, uh, and here's why. So I, I do agree. It, it sometimes, you know, attacking the social media team, it's like they're just an intern or something. Certainly not being paid for their security expertise. Right. But at the same time, they're representing the company, and they have to realize that we're not yelling at you, we're yelling at the company you work for. Right. Especially if you're the, the official figurehead or, or spokesperson or, or contact endpoint, well, there's no, that's the blessed way, right? There's no other way to contact the company, it's a it's a faceless thing, so you'd use what you have, and often that's someone on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, uh, one that Troy ran into was Tesco, which is a big uh, grocery store type thing in the UK. Uh, and he got when he asked about the fact that um, I think it was uh, when you do a password reset, it's not actually a reset. They send you your plain text password. Oh no. Uh, so we asked them about it, and their reply was, passwords are stored in a secure way. They're only copied into plain text when uh, pasted automatically into a password reminder email. Ugh, now, that's just, well. I would assume the social media team doesn't actually know how this is done. It's just the, the kind of prototypical answer they would give. 
But if the passwords are stored securely, they should be hashed and there should be no way to get back to the plain text. <laughs> exactly. If they're using, quote, reversible encryption, that's not what you're supposed to do for passwords. You're not supposed to encrypt passwords. You're supposed to hash them because it's one way. It allows you to take whatever the user says their password is and see if it matches without ever knowing what the password is. Right. What is the least amount of information you can hold onto that will allow a secure authentication and login without being able to be compromised? Yeah. And lots of people have been rubbed by the wrong way by all these companies for, in this example here, including uh, British Gas, um, saying that by disallowing pasting into the password boxes and purposely breaking password managers, that they are improving security. You're right. Their excuse here is uh, they would lose their security certificate if they allowed pasting. It could leave us open to a quote unquote brute force attack. Yeah. The fact that anybody thinks that a brute force attack is done by somebody pasting different <laughs> passwords into the box. Like, right. If your brute forcer is literally a browser where you are scripting, pasting passwords into a box, you're doing it wrong. You know, if you have something like Hydra, you could be trying a hundred thousand times at a, uh, connections at a time and all the passwords and stuff. Uh, so yeah, not a great way to do it. <laughs> right. It makes you wonder too, like, so they don't have any sort of mitigations or ways to handle that on the server side either. So that's not great. Uh, and then, you know, another one here, uh, turns out to reset your password. All you need to know is the username and your date of birth. It's like, well, everybody on Facebook knows my username and my <laughs> date of birth. <laughs> but say, yeah, but they would need to attain this information through you. Uh, uh, which once again is a breach of our terms. It's like, uh-huh. <laughs> um, there are plenty of ways to get my birthday without asking me what my birthday is. There are yeah, so many, right? I mean, like you could just pay a couple dollars and do a public record search and get it. Or I, there's there are countless ways. The one that really caught me off guard recently was um, my travel rewards provider. Uh, it's like your password can has to be between 8 and 12 characters and cannot contain any special characters. I've had those too. It's wild. And then I have a, you know, I have, I've had a less secure default for throwaway, like test account sort of passwords. I type mm -hmm. that in there to test, to check. And that one they were they're totally happy with. My, my 22 character secure random password won't take it. My yep. dictionary attack in two seconds password, no problem. Yep. All kinds of crap like that. It really is. This is a great article if you just want to see a horror show of of companies representing their security poorly. Yes, or here's one where Troy's trying to explain it to them, and he's like, uh, after there are a bunch of responses, he's like, you're missing the point. When people want to log in, they go to your homepage. The homepage is insecure, so you can't trust anything on it, including the link to the secure page. Uh, you know, because somebody could intercept that and replace it with exactly your website, but with the login link pointing to, you know, a, a domain where it's spelled the name of the bank slightly wrong. And nobody's going to notice that. It's going to have the little lock icon. Everything will be fine. I thought that was such a good example because I'm not sure everyone, I think it's specifically people who are a little worried about the, the rapid pace of TLS and HTTPS taking over the web. People who argue a little bit like, well, I don't, I don't really need this page. You know, it's not really a secure page. I don't need to send it over encrypted or, or authenticated content. But that's a really good point of, you know, as you as we said earlier, TLS isn't magic. It doesn't make your website secure by default, but it sure is a good step in the right direction. Right. In this particular case, it's the everything in the path that ne uh, needs to be secure. So if the way people go to log into their bank is go to the front page of the bank's website and click the online banking link, then that website needs to be secure, not just the one you go to when you 
go to the login page. So while their main, their, their front, you know, their commercial part of the website doesn't have any fields for you to submit sensitive information, if it's the gateway you use to get to the secure page, it also needs to be secure. But really, the, the problem here is the social media team at the bank is like, I'm sorry you feel that way. Uh, yeah, so one thing I also really liked about this article is he's got some great tips for how customer support can deal with technical queries in a way that can keep help the dialogue. I mean, obviously, the responsibility is on both parties here. Um, so if you're a security researcher or someone else complaining about security practices, there's onus on you to do so in a polite and respectful way, but just as much on the other side. And some of those those tips here are, well, don't get drawn into technical debates. Twitter's not really the best place for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and if you're the social media person for a company and you're talking to a security researcher, who do you think is going to win the technical debate? <laughs> right, yeah. You probably don't have all the information at hand that you're going to need for this one. I think a good example of an industry that hasn't had a great record here, but seems to be trying to make some changes, well, that's the telcos. Uh, In particular, it looks like U.S. mobile companies, of which maybe we'll only have three soon, well, they want to be your one-stop shop for online identity. Yeah, so AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon have come together to create the Mobile Authentication Task Force. Oh my, that sounds official, Alan. (laughs) And they have Project Verify. (laughs) These are some branded terms here, wow. They want your phone to be your password for everything. The the way to prove who you are, the way to log into websites, all this stuff. And it's like, my immediate reaction is um, TechSnap episode less than 20, uh, where... Some guy had uh, two-factor authentication set up on his bank account. Uh, but what the bad guys did was call his home when he wasn't home and talk to his, like, eight-year-old daughter. And it's like, what's your dad's birthday again? We want to buy him a cake. Uh, and a couple other questions like that to get the right answers to his security questions. And then they called his phone company and be like, yeah, I want to switch to this other phone. Uh, and the phone company didn't do enough verification that the person they were talking to was actually their subscriber. They just ported his phone number to this burner phone. Uh, so then they go to the web, the bank, log in with the stuff, answer the secret questions, and transfer a big pile of money. Um, in this particular case, he had uh, one of those um, merged mortgage checking accounts. So it's... Uh, you basically have a checking account with a negative balance of your mortgage, and that way you pay off every spare cent you have, but you can take money out. Anyway, uh, so they managed to like transfer a quarter million Australian dollars out of his account, and so that required the two-factor authentication thing. So they send an SMS message to his phone number, which is now the bad guy's burner phone. They answer it correctly, and whoosh, the money is gone. It's just gone like that. Wow. Uh, and it's like, you authorized it with two-factor authentication. It's like, actually, the phone company let somebody steal my phone number. Oh, that's just so frustrating. They got really fancy with it. Like, they even, before they ported the number, they sent the guy a text message pretending to be the phone company saying they were doing some work and that his phone coverage is going to be spotty for the next two days. So he wouldn't <laughs> oh. notice when his phone said no signal anymore. <laughs> you expect that your phone won't work. Yeah. Oh, that is so devious. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's things like this. Is uh, Again, how hard is it to social engineer somebody at Sprint to port a number? Probably not as hard as it should be. All right, well, let's see what you think of, think of this. The mobile companies say Project Verify could improve online authentication because they alone 
have access to several unique signals and capabilities that can be used to validate each customer and their mobile device. This is stuff like, well, your approximate real-time location, how long they've been a customer, how long they've used the device, and information about components inside the customer's phone. So they might have access to cryptographic chips, signatures, or just stuff on the SIM card. Yeah, but how does that work when the phone gets stolen? And how does it work when they have burger phones and all kinds of other things? But you know, we've seen for a long time that SMS as two-factor doesn't work well because it's been intercepted by server cooks in lots of different ways. Yeah, I mean, SIM swaps are all the rage these days. Um, so the one aspect of this I thought that was interesting, and it's maybe a part that is either more useful or more lucrative, I don't know. The carriers are also pitching this as a way for consumers to pre-populate data fields on a website. So the carrier has all this information. Your phone has this information, name, address, credit card number, and other stuff. So if you're using Project Verify in theory, not only could you use it to log into a website, but if you wanted to create an account, much like sign up with Google, you could do that with T-Mobile. But my phone, like the browser on my phone already has this feature. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I mean, we kind of already have. There are also already password managers for phones. Yeah, uh, it seems like really what AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon want is to get in this transaction so that they can get paid every time you sign up for a website or something. Or, you know, the website's like, oh, we want to make sure that we're a real person, not a bot, so we're going to use this thing and have their phone. And AT&T's like, that'll be 10 cents, please. Exactly, right? Find more ways to monetize the information and services that they've already, they're have already they already providing without seemingly a big investment on their part. Well, in particular, the, the version of this I envision would be literally the phone company charging the website money to give away your information. The nice thing about filling out the form manually is I know exactly what information was put in each of the fields. If I just press a button and say, hey, phone, just prove who I am to that website, do they just send all of my possible information to the website or do they make sure it sends only the very minimum? Probably not the minimum. Now, they do say users of Project Verify will be able to choose what types of data gets shared between their wireless provider and any particular website or opt in to share certain data elements across the board that you're just okay with. But that's a big question of, of user experience how that happens, what the defaults are, all of those are unknown questions at this point. And, you know, of all the different companies you interact with, which one has the most dismal track record for customer service and and information security and, and general security? Probably the phone company. Yeah, the phone companies are old and oftentimes heavily monopolized. They, they have a lot of control, a lot of access, and they change. Anyone who's worked for her or with a telco will know they change slowly, they move slowly, and they're, they're just big behemoths that don't often get things right. Ah, actually, even Krebs brings it up in a story here. Remember a couple of months ago when you found out your phone company was selling your location to anybody who paid? Oh, yeah, right. That was uh, like location, location smart. smart. Yeah. Actually, before that story broke, someone had linked it to me. I was playing with it, and it, is, it was wild. You could just go look up real-time location information on pretty much anyone. Exactly. Um, so, again, those are the people you're dealing with here. Do you really want to trust them? And then, of course, this will be something, you know, if you're unlucky enough to, to be in one of those big, horrible U.S.-style phone contracts and you get all the bloatware that comes in, well, Project Verify will probably be on one of those pre-installed apps that you can't get rid of on your phone sometime soon. Now, of course, this week has had a whole bunch of Apple news. I didn't really peg you for someone who'd be following that, Alan, but you've got an interesting story for us anyway. Yeah, well, mostly... Uh, the trials and tribulations of one of my friends, but uh, kind of tying this all together to both earlier we were talking about the deadlock you can get into with two-factor authentication, and then our last one where it's like 
do you really want your phone to be your password? Um, turns out phone companies who are bad at security and want to be the arbiters of all your information. And lastly, Apple uh, has spent the last decade trying to encourage families to centralize under having one Apple ID. Right, put your whole family and the, all your movies and music and stuff all together. You know, we won't even get into the story about them just randomly deleting movies you bought because they they the contract for the rights is up and they don't want to renew it. But so they get everybody standardized on one Apple ID for the whole family, and then this week they're like, "Oh, we now force all accounts to have two-factor authentication." So I'm on the road. I have the phone that's tied to the account, and somebody at home wants to log in to watch a movie. But they can't do two-factor authentication because I have the phone. Uh, how how does that work? It's like somebody didn't think this through. Whoa, that's there's a lot of complicated issues of trust and access and bootstrapping that those things that I mean it's hard to get right. And you can see how seemingly reasonably well-meaning policies can create some corner cases that just don't work. Uh, so apparently they found this, the secret was. Uh, if you, by calling it Verizon, I think, and, and Apple, uh, they didn't realize the importance of this when they started decided to force two-factor authentication. But apparently, if you have Find My Device active on the desktop computers, then you might be able to authorize from more than one device, not only the iPhone. I see. So there's a couple, there's a little mitigating factors here and there if, you, if you're set up right. right and you have enough settings. It, it does seem like you could very easily uh, fall into this trap, uh, especially... When you've just activated it and then say like Michael did, <laughs> get on a plane and go somewhere to go to a conference. And then people at home are like, the kids want to watch the movie on the iTunes and I can't log in. That would just be so fresh. Especially, you know, you, you've you've paid for these things. These are, in theory, your resources. And there you're on that wrong side of the security and convenience. <laughs> yeah, you've entered the right password. And it's like, oh, you just need to press the button on your phone. It's like, well, the phone is in somebody else's pocket and they're on an airplane and the phone's in airplane mode. Oh, that's that's wild. It makes me want to just go climb into a cave somewhere, forget all technology. But I think before we do that, I should we we got a couple couple just light picks here to round out this excellent gargantuan episode of TechSnap. The first of those is something a resource I saw. Maybe you just need a refresher course on SQL. Maybe you're up and coming and you're, you just need to learn SQL to get started with, or you're a developer who hasn't had to do much database work but suddenly finds themselves deep in that world. Check out Select Star SQL. It's an interactive book which aims to be the best place on the internet for learning SQL. It's free of charge, free of ads. There's no reg registration or downloads. You can just do all these great little lessons they have right in the browser and see the results. Oh, that's cool. I, uh, I've used a similar site called Coding Game, uh, where it turns learning programming into a game where like the one is like a, a zero gravity race. So there's these points you have to go around and basically you get on standard input of your program on whatever language you want, whether it's like Java, uh, JavaScript, C, Python, Ruby, whatever, you get where you currently are. And you write out to standard output like the direction you want to turn and how much um, like uh, thrust you want to use, and so you have to, you know, go around the thing and then like you have to slow down and turn. And anyway, it just makes the thinking about how to do these uh, algorithms and if statements and so on by turning it into a game. And and after you write the code and you press play, you get to watch the little. Uh, game run through and crash and use your code and you watch the like the one was um, a motorcycle. Uh, on a bridge, and there's a hole in the bridge. So as you're driving, you uh, each turn, 
you find out where you are, how far away the hole is, and you return what speed, what, what throttle setting to use on the bike, basically. Um, and then you also have to decide when to jump. And if you do it wrong, you fall down the hole. And so you, after watching the bike fall down the hole a whole lot of times, eventually you get it right. Right. You get some, it's good motivation. You're not just learning this sort of in the abstract from a dry textbook. You're motivated. It's interactive and fun. And graphical sometimes. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll have to, I'll have to check that out because that seems like a great resource. Mm-hmm. One, one other thing before we get out of here today. And well, that's what's been called the source of evil. And it's a botnet code collection. A security researcher has spent the better part of the last 10 years searching, gathering, accumulating all kinds of different bots they've found in the in the real world, wild botnet source out there. Kind of gathered. It's not super organized, but it is thrown up on GitHub. So there's tons of IRC client implementations, control implementations, from C, PHP, BASIC, C++. It's a Perl. It, it's, it's a huge gamut of stuff. I haven't looked too much just because there's so much, but it's got to be a gold mine. The number of botnets I've seen written in Perl that used to get uploaded to like Apache web servers uh, with vulnerable versions of WordPress, and they would change their process title to make it look like it was the HTTPD, but they'd always make it look like the Linux, the way Linux process output looks, not the way FreeBSD process, so it always stand out like a sore thumb. (laughs) You're like, that's not right. Yeah, um, and they would always write into slash TMP, so I actually mounted TMP noexec on my servers, and it would foil these bots, and it was fun. that's, That's excellent. I like that a lot. That's a good tip, too. Uh, and then we have one more tool I want to talk about is XSV, which is a fast command line comma separated value text file uh, toolkit written in Rust. So lately I've been doing a lot of stuff with banking and investing and you can get all your transaction lists and so on out as CSV files. But then if you want to feed them into this other program, you need to modify them a bit. It's like I need to delete these fields and change the look of this one and so on. So having a nice... Uh, Expressive command line interface for dealing with CSV files is super nice. It, it looks really handy. I haven't used it yet, but I am a big fan. Um, the author of this, whose GitHub username is Burnt Sushi, also makes the excellent Rip Grep tool, which is like Grep or Act or the Silver Searcher, but written in Rust and just really darn fast. It's got basically all the options from those other tools. So if you're looking for a better way to search source code or just files on your computer, Check that out. Um, I do also want to say they've got some good, back on XSV, he does have some good motivation here. There are some several valid criticisms. Like one, well, you just shouldn't be working with CSV data because CSV is terrible. Two, well, if you're doing stuff with gigabytes of data, again, probably CSV is not what you want. And third, at some point, just dumping this data into a SQL database and having actual access to SQL, well, that's going to be more performant and probably easier to do. But for everything that's not that sort of standard, you're not doing it all the time, it's a one-off, or just trying to get a sense of what's in this file so you can build more rigorous applications around it, XSV is great. And with that, I can escape and go hide in a cave away from technology. Well, at least until the next show, of course. You can get more of me once I'm back in the real world at West Payne or check me out on Linux Unplugged. Of course, you can find more Alan over at BSD Now. Where else can they get more of you, Mr. Jude? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Alan Jude uh, and um, Alan Jude on IRC on Freenode and EFNet. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back to the TechSnap program. It is always so much fun when you're here. You've got great insights. And hey, you started it all. Thank you.
And thank you, dear audience, for listening. This has been TechSnap 383. If you want to find all the show notes and everything we've talked about, that's techsnap.system slash 383. Techsnap.systems, it's got all kinds of stuff. You can go to slash subscribe if you want to find all the different ways you can get this episode. If you want more Jupiter Broadcasting shows, well, that's jupiterbroadcasting.com. There's a whole bunch of shows there. We've got a calendar for the ones that are live. We've got download links, pretty much everything you want. And of course, if you want to send us feedback, techsnap.systems slash contact. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.